So I was approached um, about doing a workshop on preaching that related to the theme of our conference on revival, and that was about the only parameters I was given. So as I thought about this, I thought about something that I've been thinking on and reading on or wanting to read more on for some time, and uh, I just want to kind of explain the process of my thought. It begins with a premise. My this, this workshop begins with a premise that I hope we all agree upon, which is that true revival is the work of the Holy Spirit. Which is to say that it's not something man-made or manufactured. I, come, uh, I spent five years in Texas where they were still having revivals, and it was, uh, they would plan a revival. They would schedule the revival. They, would, they knew how to do the invitation, how to do the music, and these types of things for a revival. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that the Holy Spirit does. True revival is the work of the Holy Spirit. So the question then is how should this affect how we preach or teach? I'll use those words more or less interchangeably. How should this affect how we preach? But that leads to a secondary question that I think is actually fundamental to understanding the relationship between those two questions. And that is, what is the relationship between the truth of God's word and the Holy Spirit? So that's what I want us to think mostly about, is the relationship between the truth of God's word and the Holy Spirit. And that's because in my experience, there's a lot of confusion over these terms. I think that we've started using them in ways that are a bit detached from how the Bible uses them. And I think it can lead us to wrong thinking about what the Holy Spirit is. I think it can lead us to wrong thinking about how to cultivate revival and how to think about preaching. So that's what I want to think about a little bit. Um, I'm going retro here with a chalkboard. When was the last time you saw someone use a chalkboard? So um, I'm going to put truth on this side. I can put spirit over here. I don't know if you've ever heard this distinction. I hear it a lot of um, you know, something like, that church really gets the truth, the truth part right, and this church really has a, does a good job with the spirit. There are these kind of two, uh, two things in tension or, or a dichotomy, right? So let's just kind of work with that for a little bit so we can kind of know what we're talking about. When somebody says that church is a, a truth church, how would you describe that church? What's that church like? Words preached. Uh huh. Sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. An emphasis on doctrine, right? Church discipline when uh, categories of truth are violated. Yeah, so there's a church that's going to do discipline. What would be some of the weaknesses of this church? When somebody says that's a truth church, they might even assume there are certain weaknesses then with that church, right? Judgmental. Judgmental. What was that one over here? Legalistic. Legalistic. Seen as boring. Boring, yeah. Good. What, another one? Cold. Cold, yeah, cold, good. Okay, now over here, now we have the other kind of church, right? The spirit church, with an emphasis on the spirit. What is this church like? Prayer filled. They pray. Dancing. Dancing. Yeah, emotive. Emotive expression, right? Dancing, tambourines, um, maybe even falling over, right? 
extemporaneous. Pastor stands up. I was going to preach on, but the spirits led me to, right? Yeah. It's like a logic versus feeling. Yeah, that's good. So you can have logic over here and feeling over here. Good. What would be some of the weaknesses that might accompany a church like this? No doctrine. Yeah, lack of doctrine. Good job. What else? Feelings can sometimes substitute truth. Yeah, feelings over truth. No assurance of salvation. Yeah, and that's kind of an extension of doctrine, right? Really assurance. Good. So you, you, get, you get a sense for what I mean, right? So w- what people often do then when they talk in these two categories is they, they call for a balance between these two extremes where we want to draw on the strengths of both but avoiding the pitfalls of either, right? Now I want to start by saying I think it is true that far too many churches are dull, boring, doctrinaire, and stuck in their own way of doing things. I also think it's true that far too many churches allow their preaching to be part of an emotionally manipulative show that isn't rooted in truth. So, what people are trying to get at when they use this dichotomy, I think has some grounding in truth. I am not critiquing maybe what's behind what they're trying to say. But what I am going to suggest is that the language and terminology they're using of spirit and truth leaves us with a sub-biblical view of both spirit and truth. And that I think that because of that, the resultant strive for balance that we're pushed toward has us aiming at the wrong target, which in turn adversely affects our preaching. That's what I'm trying to say. It is my fear, as I've studied this, that in aiming for this balance between spirit and truth, we may be gutting the primary means God's spirit uses to bring revival. We may be gutting the primary means God's spirit uses to bring revival. So let me explain kind of the plan that we're going to take to look and study this topic, and then, uh, and then we'll del- delve in. So the first thing we're going to do is a quick look at John 4, because that's where Jesus says, those who worship me must worship me in spirit and truth, where we get this whole dichotomy. The second thing we're going to do is uh, do kind of a broad and quick survey of the relationship between word and spirit in the Old Testament. The third thing we're going to do is look at the specific relationship between scripture and spirit, especially in the New Testament, or as it's taught in the New Testament. 
And then the last thing we're going to do is draw some conclusions from this and consider its implications for our preaching. Now, I want to say in doing this, there's a certain risk in in looking at something, a very narrow theme within Scripture. I I want to say at the outset, I am not going to say everything that the Bible says about the Holy Spirit or about Scripture. We have an hour. Um, So don't take my, I, I want to state things strongly and provocatively to help us think. Hopefully we'll have time for Q&A at the end. If we don't, I'll stay around because there's a break afterwards. So if you want to push or prod or push back on things, I encourage that. You're not here to hear from me. We're here to go to God's Word and let Him speak. So let God's Word kind of guide your thinking and, and, uh, and be aware of other Scripture passages that might come to mind as it relates to these things. But I do want us to look at these things. So first we're going to look at John 4, verses 23 and 24. So open there. This is the story of uh, the adulterous woman at the well. She's had many husbands, right? Um, she's a Samaritan woman. And uh, in the course of her conversation, she asks, you know, who's right? Where should we worship? Um, are the Samaritans right and where we worship? Are the Jews right where they worship? And Jesus answers in 423, But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So I want you uh, to, with, with the people you're sitting nearby me, the person you're sitting next to especially, answer this question. Is Jesus' comment on worshiping in spirit and truth meant to call us to bring two otherwise competing things together. Because that's what's going on here. Spirit and truth, you know, here we kind of have two competing things, and we're saying we need to find a balance going to this verse. Is that what's going on in this verse? Is Jesus saying, here are two competing things, spirit and truth, and they need to be brought together? So look around, you know, look at the verses ahead of it and before, look at the verses itself, and uh, discuss with the person you're sitting by, and then we'll hear what you guys have discovered. Yeah. 
All right. So, uh, what'd you conclude? Is is he answering? Is he is he talking about two things that are kind of opposed that need to be brought together here? Is that what he's recommending? I see a head sh a head shake. Why not? They were never intended to be divided, divided in the first place. Okay. Uh, at, at no point in scripture did he say we have this and we have this. Go and figure out how to join them together. They they were never divided. Okay. So there's a biblical theological background here, which we'll get into more. Of they're not meant to be divided. Uh, how about from the context itself? Is there anything that would suggest that that's not what he's talking about? Or do the people think it is? Yeah, back here. Yeah. So in this, so in this passage, um, people are debate whether spirit refers to the Holy Spirit or not. Um, in my talk, in the spirit-truth dichotomy, I am talking about the Spirit as Holy Spirit, and when people go to this verse to cite the need for both, they tend to mean the Holy Spirit and truth. Um, I don't think we're going to conclusively answer in this session whether spirit and truth here refers explicitly to the Holy Spirit or to the Holy Spirit and something else or to something else. Uh, yeah. That's great. Saying in response to the, the, the woman saying that uh, in verse 20, our fathers worship in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. So this is all coming from this idea of location. That's right. So That's huge. Right Do you guys hear what Stefan said? He says, look, the question in, at hand is not one of spirit versus truth, and are we supposed to worship in spirit, or are we supposed to worship in truth? That's not the question being asked. The question being asked is a geographical one. Right? The Old Testament emphasizes worship at Jerusalem. Remember? Um, they, start building, uh, they start building what looks like an altar in, in uh, the area on the other side of the river. And the people say, what are you doing? Because we're supposed to worship here. Right? And they say, oh, oh no, there's a reminder of what we're supposed to do. You know, so worship needs to be centralized at Jerusalem in the Old Testament. Right? And God is, and so that's led to some questions for her. We're Samaritans. We don't go to Jerusalem. We worship on a mountain. Who's right? Are we supposed to only do it in Jerusalem, or can we do it on this mountain? And he says, I'm exploding those categories. Because you need to know something about God. God is spirit. I think there's a lot that's meant by that, but at the least it means, or at the, in part it means, he's not geographically bound, right? He's not human flesh. We could only be in one place. And so worship of him changes where it's not no it is not it is now not so important where it's located but what's going on in it that it's spirit and truth that we're doing. So that helps us say I'm not going to be able to explain all of what spirit and truth means but it doesn't mean that these are two opposite things that Jesus is saying need to be held in balance. This is a solution to geographically localized worship, and he's saying, no, it should be everywhere worship that focuses on what's going on in our heart that's related to these two things, spirit and truth. Even the Greek, there's uh, the word in, just like in our English, it says in spirit and truth, not in spirit and in truth, right? Which isn't conclusive, but it does hint that these two things go together, not are two opposite things. So it, it, 
the spirit and truth are not two intuitively contrary things that Christ is saying must be held together in an essential tension. Whatever John 4, 23 and 24 means, it, it doesn't mean that. Okay, So I, I'm not going to give the definitive interpretation of it, but I just wanted to establish that at the outset because this is where people usually go in support of this. We need to have both, right? Okay, now let's keep going. I want to look a little closer then at the relationship, as Alan suggested we do, um, of word and truth in the Old Testament. In order to do that, we need to know something. Many of you probably know this, but the word for the Spirit in... Hebrew is ruach. You could put you could put a ch there or an h with a dot on it. Ruach, which can be translated wind, spirit, breath. And so we're going to be looking at different verses, and that word ruach is going to be there, but you might see it in your translation as spirit or wind or breath. Commentators of the debate: When is it what? When is it what? Um, but I, I think it is speaking to us and helping us understand the relationship between ruach, or spirit, and the word. All right? So uh, in that next uh, section on your sheet, there are five different scripture references. Um, I want you to just kind of read quickly through them uh, with the person you were discussing with before, asking the question, what, what is the basic, rela- is there a relationship between God's word and his spirit? So that's the Psalms, uh, Psalms, Isaiah, and Nehemiah passages. Okay, what did, what did you see? What did you see in looking at these passages on word and spirit? Go ahead, yeah. Yeah. There's a close relationship. <laughs> Thank you. And that's really, <laughs> that actually, you know, the goal of this is not to do a thorough exegesis of each one of these passages. It really is to see it's an obviously close relationship. That, that's about the bottom line of what I want you to see. So sometimes stating the obvious is an A+. Plus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Good observation. I like that. I didn't see that. The, in the, the first three relate specifically to uh, the, the word and, and the spirit. And, and you, you see this you know, poetic parallelism that, that uh, I think John was talking to us about, how they're kind of stating the same thing two different ways. And, and it takes word and spirit, and that's, those are two of the words that change, which means that for the authors of those, those psalms, those words are... Or I wouldn't say they're identical, but they're so closely overlapping that you can interchange them, right? And there's something being said by interchanging them, right? The, the, the last three, if you include counting Nehemiah twice, um, relate to the, the proclaimed word and the spirit. So one general word and the second category, proclaimed word. But again, it's this tight connection between the two. The spirit comes upon people so they can instruct the Spirit comes upon people so they can proclaim, right? 
This has been a helpful image for me. You know, I talked about ruach can be spirit, wind, or breath. I want everybody to just hold their hand in front of their mouth and try speaking a word with no breath so you don't feel any breath. That's silly, isn't it? You get the point, right? You, you can't form a word even without your breath. I don't, I don't think it's a... I don't think it's a mistake that the third person of the Trinity is called Ruach, or Numa in the New Testament, which is similar semantic domain. And I would say that what we're seeing, put more complicated than, what's your name? John put it. You can no more separate God's word from his spirit than you can separate one's words from the breath that speaks them. You can no more separate God's word from his spirit than you can separate one's words from the breath that speaks them. One doesn't have an... They're not the same thing. My breath and the word are not the same thing, right? But they can't exist without... One can't exist without the other, right? So it seems that that is what the Old Testament is telling us, that the spirit and word are intricately bound. And we can let the theologians discuss and fine-tune exactly what that relationship is. There's probably a lot to be learned there, but in the context of this hour, that's enough to establish that. So now on to point number three here, looking at the relationship between Scripture and Spirit. So God's Word is kind of this this broad term, right? It It can be used, rightly or wrongly, it can be used to talk about intuitions or sense I have. So one might say, uh, why did you come to Canada, James? Well, God told me to come to Canada, or God led me here, something like that. We can refer to God's word in a lot of different ways. But when it comes to his written word, the scriptures, I want to look a little deeper at what the, the written word of God is in relationship to the Holy Spirit. And to that, we have to go to the New Testament, because that's where it refers in the past two, primarily. I mean, you get that in the prophets as well and stuff, but... Let's go to the New Testament and see what it has to say about the written word of God, the scriptures. And what I want to do, I'm going to do this. Three, three has 3A three and 3B. So 3A is just looking very briefly at the nature of the scriptures themselves. 3B is looking at the nature of the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to see, uh, I think, some, some tight correlation between those two. So... Um, 3A there, you have Hebrews 1, Luke 24, and Colossians 1, 24, and 28. Just do those first two. I'm, we're going to do Colossians together. Um, you'll get sick of your partner by, by the time you're done with Luke. So um, just look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, and then Luke 24, 25 through 27, and 44 through 49, and, and ask the question, what do we learn about the nature of Scripture in these verses? What do we learn about what Scripture is doing in these Scriptures? So Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, Luke 24, 25 through 27, 44 through 49. Probably for a lot of you, these will be familiar passages. A lot of you are familiar with these passages, so I'm not giving you a lot of time. What, what, are, what, are they, what is we learning about the nature of Scripture in these passages? What was that? They're communicated by human agents. That's neat. Yeah. Which we'll see later. We'll get to Second Peter. And these human agents carry along by the Holy Spirit. But yeah, this was revealed by, by the Father to the prophets, and, and then Moses wrote this. I'll talk about that. So it's human agents that wrote these things. Yeah, what else do we learn about the nature? Um, the disciples' understanding of the scriptures kept them from understanding who 
okay? Their, their lack of understanding about the scriptures or wrong understanding of the scriptures. Yes, that's great. I just wanted to clarify that's what you meant. That's good. Yeah, good. And, and what were they missing? The truth about Christ. The truth about Christ. So, so anyone else, what's the nature of, of the scriptures? Yeah. Christ declared our fathers in the ambiguity of scripture in his person and his work. That's right. He is the word. Yeah. So we have this truth of the scriptures, right? And it's all pointing to Christ, right? Ultimately, the capstone of that is Christ. He spoke in the past, he spoke in these ways, now he speaks Christ. And do you see Luke 24? This is great. This is great. I didn't see this at first. And then just yesterday when I was finishing my preparation for this, leapt off the page to me. So in Luke 24, he says, in 46, he says, Thus it is written in the scriptures that are pointing to him that we've already seen, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's what it was written. That's all in the scriptures, he's saying, right? So what are they to be witnesses of in verse 49 or 48? Witnesses of the resurrection? What are they to be witnesses of? What was written? How Christ, well, how the, the ambiguity of the Old Testament makes sense in light of Christ. Is that how you said that? That's what they're supposed to be witnesses of. They're supposed to reason from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Isn't that what we see them doing in Acts? Who wrote Acts? Luke. And who's going to help them do it? Verse 49. The Holy Spirit. He's going to help them witness to the scriptures how they point to Christ. That's his job. So, Acts 1.8, you'll receive power and the Holy Spirit comes to me, comes upon you, and you are to be witnesses. Witnesses of how Christ fulfills the scriptures. Eh? Let's look at Colossians real quick. This is an awesome, if you want to know what your ministry should be about, this is it right here. Colossians 1. I'm going to pick up in verse 25 or 24. No, I'll pick up in verse 25. He's talking about the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. What's his job? He says in verse 25, to make the word of God fully known. You might say to, to preach the whole counsel of God's word. That's his mission. But that doesn't, he doesn't stop there. What's his mission? To make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Well, what's that mystery? What is he talking about? To them God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, mystery, that word you could kind of say, riddle's not a great translation of it, but it gets at the heart of it a little bit. Like there's, there's something going on, um, as uh, Aaron says, an ambiguity that only makes sense in light of Christ. That's, that's kind of how a riddle works. You get these clues that they're all there. You can see what they all are, but it doesn't like all click until you see the answer. And then once you hear the answer, you're like, ah, yeah, now I get it. 
right? So there's this mystery that was hidden but is now made known, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So he says, look, here's what I do. I proclaim the whole counsel of God's word. Oh, look, here's what I do. I make known to you the mystery, which is how all these things come together in Christ. And then he says, him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. So to preach Christ is to preach the mystery, which is how all these things come together in Christ, is to preach the whole counsel of God's word. That's what it is, right? So if you're wondering what the nature of Scripture is, and we can talk about a lot of different things, but the point we're getting after here, the nature of Scripture, is is the truth from God that is pointing us to Christ and all that that means, right? All right. So that's Scripture. Now let's do the Holy Spirit. And I'm just going to call out these. I want... uh, Look up one of these four verses, have your fingers there, the John ones, John 14, John 15, 1 John, 1 John. And I'm just going to have different people read them, um, and then we'll all answer the question together. So what is the purpose or nature of the Holy Spirit revealed in these verses? Does somebody have John 14, 26? Who's got it? Go, read it out. Holy Spirit's going to come once he's supposed to you, teach you all things and bring to remembrance what I have taught you, what Christ has taught you. Okay? John 15, 26, and 27. Who's got that? When the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. But you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So the same job they had to be witnesses, the Holy Spirit, that's his job, to be that witness, right? To witness about Christ. Good. 1 John 2, 27. And I think that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, it is true, and is no lie, just as it is taught you abide in him. So this Holy Spirit's going to come so that he's going to lead you to the truth. He guides us to understand what's true. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And 1 John 4, 1 to 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Uh, By this we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is... There are many spirits. Um, I'm, uh, I grew up in a Pentecostal church in the States when I was young. I've heard my mom speak in tongues, though I'm not sure she does it anymore. Um, I, I, this, is, I think, is a really helpful way to distinguish whether it's a true manifestation of God's spirit or something else. Mm-hmm. Who's being exalted, Christ or the Holy Spirit? If the Holy Spirit's being exalted, it's not the Holy Spirit. Because his job is to help everyone understand Christ. That's how you can discern what's a true spirit and what's not. Is Christ being lifted up? The Christ of Scripture. Not just any vague notion of Scripture, but that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? Doctrine about him. Right? Truth about him. 
Good. So what do we learn from these passages about the Holy Spirit, his nature, what he's about? It's probably too obvious, right? Yeah. He's about bringing us to truth and exalting Christ. And what do you notice about the work of the Holy Spirit and the nature of Scripture? They match, right? So, what we'll see next then, in light of that, should make it all click for us. And these are, these are well-known passages, but I want us to go to them and just kind of let this all click for us. 2 Peter 1, 21, which we alluded to earlier. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When the Bible says how the scriptures got here, it attributes it to man and the Holy Spirit. You want to unleash the power of the Holy Spirit, you unleash the power of scriptures. Which is what Ephesians tells us, right? Ephesians 6, 17. You guys know the passage. What is, yep, just a second. The sword of the Spirit. This is the weapon. The one weapon or tool of the Holy Spirit. The implement of the Holy Spirit. The only one listed in all of Scripture. Take the sword of the Spirit. Which is the Word of God. Second Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, it's not the same word pneuma, but it's the same root behind that, breathed out by God. And I think that language, it's my, my understanding that language is referring not just to inspiration in the sense that it is God's literal word, but also God's Spirit's activity in inspiring that word. I think that's why that word is chosen. And then, this is cool, Hebrews 3.7. Some of you have seen this. Maybe some of you haven't. This is really neat. Turn there. The author of Hebrews is about to quote the scriptures. What you're used to hearing when the scriptures are quoted is said, past tense. And it usually talks about the human author, right? As Isaiah said, or as it was written, but here he says, the Holy Spirit says. And then it quotes scripture. How do you want, how do you want to hear God's voice today? How do you want the Holy Do you want the Holy Spirit to speak to you today? The Holy Spirit says, even though it was written hundreds of years before that, He speaks today through the Word. The Holy Spirit does. We could go on and show in Acts how when the Holy Spirit falls upon the apostles, what do they do? They preach the Scriptures and how Christ fulfilled them. And then the Holy Spirit comes in power on people, and what do they do? They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, and a bunch of other things that the Holy Spirit does too, which is what I said we're not covering today, but is important. Or you can go to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, where Paul talks about in the first chapter how they received the word with power from the Holy Spirit, and later he says, because you received God's word as it really was, not the writings of man, but as God's word. So when God's Spirit comes, or when, 
when God's spirit comes upon the Thessalonians, he says, you received God's word, or the, the teaching as God's word. Right? You get that? So, if we want to see God's spirit work, we should give ourselves to the ministry of the word. And if we're not willing to labor hard at preaching God's word, listen, we should have no expectation that the Holy Spirit will work. I'm not saying that you can handcuff the Spirit. He is bigger than me and my limitations. I'm talking about expectation. If we're not willing to labor hard at preaching God's word, we should have no expectation that the Holy Spirit will work. If you ever want a good quote on anything, Luther has it. Martin Luther. And he has a good quote on this. He was in an exchange with a, a man that he'd actually kind of mentored, who had kind of started really emphasizing the Holy Spirit and, and bringing all these kind of radical changes to try and bring revival. And this is what Luther said about him. With all his mouthing the words, Spirit, 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 he tears down the bridge, the path, the way, the ladder, and all the means by which the Spirit might come to you. Instead of the outward order of God in the material sign of baptism and the oral proclamation of the word of God, he wants to teach you not how the Spirit comes to you, but how you come to the Spirit. In other words, he's saying, this guy has become, he's detached from just, he'll, he'll go on to say, you want to know how I changed everything and I upset the whole Roman world? The word of God did it. He says, I sat back and had a beer. Well, God did it, or the word of God did it. He's not trying to de-emphasize the work of the Spirit. He's saying that's the means God used to bring something that no army could have done. So while, you, while, while this guy's saying, Spirit, 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 and not preaching the word, he's robbing us, and not, not focusing on baptism rightly administered, he's, he's robbing us of the bridge, the path, the ladder by which the Holy Spirit comes to us. We can focus so much on the Spirit, but in so doing, actually rob the Spirit of the means he has, or he gives us, of reviving our hearts. So let's return to the question I began with. If the Holy Spirit alone brings revival, how should we preach? It's obvious. Yeah, we should preach the word of the living God as we plead with the Spirit to use our efforts to bring revival. The Holy Spirit has spoken. I was at a, a, a Matthias Media event and they said, if we ever publish a Bible, we're going to call it the Holy Bible, words of the Holy Spirit in black. <laughs> um, the Holy Spirit has spoken and it's been written down in the scriptures. And his normal and expected means of speaking today is through the Christ-exalting word. His activity is closely linked with the Spirit, as closely linked as our breath is with our words. So if we want our preaching to be Spirit-empowered, if we want revival, we must faithfully say what God has said. We must take the actual message of the Bible and proclaim it to our people. Let's not tear down the bridges or knock down the ladder. Let's utilize them. Let's preach God's word. Now, in the remaining time I have, I want to say that I don't know of any evangelical church 
that says it does anything other than preach the word. So I want to give you an illustration about what I do and don't mean by preaching God's word. Uh, let's say that Dorette rushes into the room and hands me a sheet of paper and rushes out. And the sheet of paper says, there has been a bomb threat. We need everyone to leave the building immediately. And I read that sheet. I've been entrusted with a message to deliver to you. And I say this. All of us have felt threatened before. Maybe it was in your home environment when you grew up. Maybe it was a time when your parents went through a divorce. Maybe you've been the victim of a crime. Or maybe it's just an overwhelming situation. But we've all felt threatened. And this message gives us three things we should do in order to be able to handle when we feel threatened. Three steps for when you're threatened. First, it tells us there is something bigger and greater than us out there. Because it says, we need everyone to leave the building immediately. Who's that we? It's someone out there above us that we can look to. We're not, we're not alone in this. There's someone watching out for us when we feel threatened. And that's important to keep in mind. Second, it tells us that we're not alone. Do you know what it says that the we are telling? It says we need everyone, not just a few, not some, but everyone. We're all in this together. We're all cared for by the we, and we're all in this together. There's no exception. So when you feel threatened, remember that. You're part of the everyone. And third, we need to leave whatever situation we're in. With care and support from those over us, remembering we're not alone, we need to get out of whatever situation we're in that's making us feel threatened. And it doesn't just say leave the building. It says leave the building immediately. There's a sense of urgency. We need to get out of the situation that's causing us to feel threatened. Have I faithfully delivered the message? No, I haven't. I haven't. Let me try it again then, okay? Let me try it again. The opening sentence is powerful and it's intriguing. We do well to pay attention to it. It deserves its own comment. We can talk about the second sentence later. We don't have time for that today, but I want us to look fo focus in on this first sentence. Do you notice that instead of saying, there is a bomb threat, the author has used the present perfect to express the situation. There has been a bomb threat. This draws our attention not only to the present situation, but also to the past situation that gave rise to it. It raises the question in our mind, who made this bomb threat? Why was it made? When was it made? And then it points out the source of the threat, a bomb. In the 20th, 21st century, bomb has come to have a wide range of meanings. It could mean that something was awesome. That party was the bomb. Or it could mean that something was terrible. That joke totally bombed. Most likely here, the usage pertains to the more traditional sense, referring to an explosive device. So we see here that there is a threat, that the source of the threat is an explosive device. 
and that the origin of this threat happened at some indeterminate time in the past. Have I faithfully delivered the message? Amen, brother. <laughs> we'll see you next week. <laughs> Let me try one more time. The author is writing to a group of people who are in a building. The sentence, second sentence implies that when it calls them to leave said building. As he addresses these people, he makes a clear call to them. His call for them is to leave the building. But he doesn't just issue the command without giving them the grounds for his command. He tells them there has been a bomb threat, presumably against the very building that they are in. And so not only does he speak to these people in the building, he calls them to action and he grounds that call to action in a reality that they can all acknowledge as true. Have I delivered the message faithfully? No. The first one that I gave, the first example I gave, was a typical, topical message from the Bible. I have some, there's some need that I need to address, a felt or experienced need. Go to the Bible and figure out a way to make it address that felt need. But I actually wasn't saying what God said at all, even though I was quoting the text and using the text. The latter two are typical expositional messages from the Bible, and this is important. Just because we're doing expositional preaching doesn't mean we're doing what we've, we were saying we need to do. All three fail to deliver the actual message to the people, and all three result in the building exploding with the people still inside. I actually need to say what God has said. I need to deliver to his people the message that he has given so that they need to know how they can be rescued, what his plan is, what Christ has done for them as they preach the scriptures faithfully. Well, we could go on and on about how to do that well and avoid those first three pitfalls. The two most helpful tips I could give in 30 seconds... One would be, ask these two questions of the text. What was God saying to them, and how is our situation like theirs? And in seeing how our situation is like theirs, that's where it's not just a message about what, you know, in that third example, I did a good job of what he was saying to them, but I never brought it to what he's saying to us, right? And I have to do that work. I am, I am pleading with people, leave the building, leave the building, quick, right? That's, the, that's, what I, that's what I am God's inspired prophet to the people. What was he saying to them? How is our situation like theirs? And the second thing is understand how your passage fits within the argument or plot of the wider section. Context, right? Historical context, literary context for those who like those terms. But how, understand how your passage fits within the argument or wider plot, or the plot of the wider section. That'll help you get a sense for what is he saying to them, and therefore, how can I say what he speak, speak to us? There's a lot of great resources out there on how to do that. But I'll say, I mean, prayer is vital in, in, in bringing about revival. 
Paul Martin's giving a talk of three things, faithful preaching of the word, prayer, and he says cooperation. Those are the three things that have marked almost every revival. So I'm not trying to say this is the only thing. But it is the main tool of the Holy Spirit, linked even more closely to the work of the Holy Spirit than prayer. Faithfully proclaim what God has said. Speak for God. Speak, deliver his message in a spirit of dependence on the Holy Spirit, crying out to him, and allow that to be the ladder, the bridge, the path the Holy Spirit uses to tear down kingdoms and build up new ones. Let me pray. Father, there are preachers in this room, some of whom I know, some of whom I don't. There are others who will be preachers down the line, others who teach in a Sunday school context or a small group. May we be people who understand that if the Holy Spirit is going to work, it's not going to be because uh, we've come up some creative thi- with some creative thing to say from the Bible or even have made some true observations about what's going on in the Bible, but when we are people who proclaim the message that you have spoken by your prophets in the power of your Holy Spirit and allow you to change hearts through your appointed means. So I pray that you would cause us all to leave here with a greater sense of the importance of that. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There are four books that I used a lot in in, uh, preparation for this, so I'll just kind of mention them real quickly. This is a book that you can't find because it was over in Britain, but it's when God's voice is heard, and there's a, a, a chapter in there by John Woodhouse about the relationship between the Holy Spirit and preaching. Uh, this is a book by Peter Adam called Speaking God's Word. It's really kind of a, a broad theology of expositional preaching, but with a, a sensitivity to the role of the Holy Spirit in that. Um, then Art Azurdia has written Spirit-Empowered Preaching, which is a, a good book. Um, very balanced treatment, really saying if we want the Spirit to be at work in our, in our preaching, how should we do it? Uh, nice book. And this is one that this, I actually had decided on my topic. It was printed and published, and then this book came out after that, which is called Preaching with Spiritual Power, under, Calvin's Understanding of Word and Spirit in Preaching. Mm-hmm. And it's more than that because he does a survey of all of the Reformation in order to set Calvin against that backdrop, and, uh, you know, that quote I got from Luther, I got from this book. And so it's been uh, a really, I'm not even finished with it yet, but it's been a very interesting read so far. So those are four interesting books. Uh, I'm now past my time by a few minutes, but I will stick around here uh, for a bit so that if you have questions or you want to push back on something or are confused, feel free to ask.